This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks and Zebras. want to announce that this is my last show for Let's Talk Animals. Today is going to be a special day. I have four veterinary colleagues and friends that have been on the show before. I am interviewing them separately, and our topics cover different trends of veterinary medicine. So let's get to it. My first guest is an old friend. Uh, we figured we've known each other for 34 years as uh, neighbors and colleagues. Dr. Greg Thibodeau, who used to own the Maine Coast Veterinary Clinic in Blue Hill. As I say, we were neighbors uh, professionally. We became friends and believe it or not, we still are friends. Uh, good morning, <laughs> Greg. How are you? Good morning. Now, do I have to call you Dr. Hunt or can I call you what I, what I normally call you? Well, if you normally call it, you can't say that on the radio. Oh, oh I'll, I'll say John. I'll settle. I'll settle on John. Good morning, John. It's Good morning, really Greg. Nice to talk with you. Well, it's it's great to have uh, friends and professionals on my last show, and uh, you're definitely one of them. I was blessed to have uh, veterinarians as neighbors that just became friends and just great people. Um, that's what made the profession uh, that much better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, John. I, I would, I would uh, certainly agree with you. I, I remember when you moved to town in Bucksport in 1988, and I had occasion to do a large animal call uh, in your neck of the woods. And so I thought, well, I'm right here. I, I, I know that there's a new veterinarian in town, and so I should just stop in. And uh, I did, and uh, we developed a, a fast friendship. I think we. Uh, we went to dinner shortly thereafter with our wives. Yeah. And actually, we were also on, on, a, on the board for the emergency clinic in Bangor. Oh, yeah. And we were on a committee. You were the head of the employee committee. Yeah. And there was a big shakeup. And yes. we had to have a, like a secret meeting with some of the employees. <laughs> yes. You and I had to stick together on that one. Remember it, that? It's, it, there's always a little bit of drama behind the scenes, isn't there? It's hard, <laughs> it's hard, hard to escape it, I guess. As, I guess as long as we're dealing with human beings, you know, as long as our, our staff members and our clients are people, there's going to be a little bit of something that uh, comes down, down the pike, you know? Dogs and cats are easier, I tell you. I, I think so. Yes, absolutely. Now we were we started our medicine our careers in the 1980s early 80s, and um, in those days, and in the 80s is much different than the 1940s back in um, with uh, Harriet and those guys. Yes, but up in Maine in the 1980s, it was still a lot of little small towns that had some had veterinarians in them, and some didn't, and they needed them. And you were recruited by Blue Hill. Can you just uh, give the listeners another brief story on how that happened? Yeah, when I was in my fourth year of uh, third year, I think actually, veterinary school, I uh, had occasion to get the Maine Veterinary Association uh, newsletter. And uh, being a Maine resident, I, I was obligated actually to come back to Maine. And in in that newsletter, there was a, a, a small advertisement. They were a group of citizens in the Blue Hill Peninsula area, Blue Hill, Deer Isle. And uh, these people, ordinary people, had just put an ad saying, you know, we really would love to have a veterinarian around here and we would uh, give consideration to helping one get started. So that piqued my interest. And um, 
uh, Jane and I uh, made arrangements to go and interview with them. And, uh, you know, they, uh, we, we liked them. We liked the area. They liked us. And uh, so we kind of sat down and they helped us get started because, uh, you know, typically if you associate yourself straight out of school with another veterinarian, which is the normal way, uh, because you've got bills to pay and no equipment and whatnot, you know, you need to associate with someone else's hospital in order to start practicing. So I, I had no, none of those things. And uh, so uh, with the uh, big sales and uh, uh, various things, they were able to raise about $9,000. And uh, that's what helped me put a few drugs on the shelf. And uh, I took uh, 1500 bucks and bought an old vehicle and uh, used that for farm calls. And uh, it, it got started like that. Well, and that's doubly hard. Uh because I worked for uh, oh, two or three vets for about five years before moving to Bucksport. So I had that quote unquote experience and mentorship, if you call it that. I'm some, some of it was good, some bad. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't have the computers. We didn't have Google. We, didn't, we had our textbooks that were on our desk in the office and that was it. Um, or calling somebody that you knew. So you went in as a newbie. You had you, no experience. And your textbooks. That must have been it, 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 you know, John, It's it's a good thing I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> Ignorance <laughs> is bliss. Yes, because I certainly <laughs> reconsidered and said, "What what a foolish thing!" Yeah, you're totally totally right about that, John. Uh, but uh, also, what I would say. Uh, uh, it, it is absolutely true that I was inexperienced, of course, uh, in, in terms of conducting myself uh, with, with clients and uh, with patients and, and uh, all of that. But it is also true that I learned uh, to uh, rely on, on my education. And it, it really did serve me. You know, you really do know more than you think when you're just coming out of school even though it's it's really nice to have the reassurance of an experienced veterinarian uh, nearby. And certainly there are mistakes that I made simply because I was an inexperienced uh, practitioner that an experienced practitioner would have picked up on. So it was a real, uh, it was a real challenge. And I, I would say for the first uh, year, even two years, uh, it took some time before I was able to get my stride in terms of uh, being efficient uh, with diagnoses and being efficient with people and pets and uh, kind of getting through my day, you know, with, uh, with, with some degree of proficiency. And handling cases you never seen even learned about in school. Yep. Uh, and emergencies. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, and not only that, but it took me some time before I even had my first employee. So, I mean, I was doing this all by myself. Occasionally I could bribe uh, my wife, Jane, into, uh, uh, you know, offering a little bit of help, but, but, you know, we could never figure out who was the boss in that circumstance. <laughs> at, at home, when I'm home with Jane, I, I know who's, who's who, but, you know, in, in the clinic, we, we couldn't figure that out. But anyway, it took some months before I could get, and, and, and even then, John, you, there were no, uh, formally trained uh, veterinary technicians uh, really to speak of. No. Uh, so I ended up hiring someone that lived nearby who had absolutely no veterinary experience and really had to, you know, start from scratch. Uh, whereas 
that's something I took for granted when I was at the veterinary school. You know, you, you've got trained technicians that are actually helping you. And, and of course, you've got all the professors and the residents and the interns that are uh, helping you out. So uh, it was really starting from literally nothing, you know, yeah. and uh, building up. And it, 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 took some, it took some doing. And uh, it was a baptism of fire. You know, there were some of my clients that never forgave me for... Uh, <laughs> some of those experiences for the most part <laughs> very understanding however you mean they went to the other aisle in the grocery store and they saw you yes indeed <laughs> yes many times over and over again <laughs> now you were you were born and raised in maine yes that's right so you were a mainer i, I was from away and yeah. i went to a small mill town bucksport yeah and uh you know you hear all these stories that you know people look at you differently and stuff. But I must say, um, I, I loved the people in the whole, this whole area, Blue Hill, yeah. Orland. I mean, they are just wonderful, wonderful clients that welcomed me. Um, you know, we were, you and I were both hardworking, honest, did the best we could. And that's all people want. Didn't yeah. care where, where I was from. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I really people, appreciated that. Yeah. And people sense that too. I, I think if you're putting putting forward your best effort and you're doing a, you're doing a good job to take care of people, given the, the, whatever limitations you may have in your own practice. I think people can recognize that, you know, and I, I will say this over the course of time, I did have some veterinarians that came into and out of my practice. And I did hear from a lot of them that they felt like we had the best clients. And, and I, I would have to say absolutely to that. You know, we really had some great, wonderful clients. And they were actually the clients sometimes uh, worked against us. If we're trying to find an associate, you were lucky with Bob Plour. Yeah. Um, my, I had some coming through and they became, they are so loyal to, to me as, as they were loyal to you that they, they didn't care who you brought in, how good the person was. They really stayed loyal yeah. to yeah. us. And, and that was a, a double-edged sword. I, I, that, that made working with them excellent because we could work with them and not have to worry about what we had to say. And we just, okay, let's, what's the best for the animal. But on yeah. the other hand, if you want to grow your practice, you need an associate and they have to see people. You can't just pay them and have yeah. them sit around eating donuts all day. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Certainly there was some of that, but um, my orientation, uh, you know, as a, as the owner of the practice always was that I, I wanted to bond, uh, bond the client to the practice. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, so yeah, it worked out And uh, Bob Plour, as, as you know, is a long time, uh, uh, you know, associate of mine. And, uh, so, I mean, it worked out perfectly well, you know, after just a, a short period of time that he was on board, uh, you know, he, he made himself right at home in the practice and he, he was, he was that way the, the entire time that uh, we were together. Yeah, they, everyone loved him. He was, yeah. he was you, you were very lucky, very lucky. Yeah. So you've yeah. been retired for how many years? Well, I've only been, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm forcing you to say this. <laughs> I, I've only been using the R word for a couple of years, but we <laughs> did sell the practice 10 years ago next month. Wow. Uh, so uh, I say the same thing. Wow. And uh, when I look back on the past 10 years, wow, it, it has just gone right by. That's for sure. It's been eight years in about two weeks for me. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it does go by. It does. So have you thought about going back um, and 
why would you want to or why would you not want to? You know, I, I do revisit that. You know, I, I continue to maintain my main license, even though I don't necessarily continue with the requirements that are necessary for me to practice in Maine. Um, I do revisit this, but it, it has become less and less over time uh, as I realized that there is a great big world out there and so many things are interesting to explore and spend your time doing um, that I don't think in a serious way any longer uh, uh, about being in veterinary practice. Although I, I, I would say to that, though, you know, never say never, because I, I may rediscover um, my profession in, a, in the same way or in a different way as before. So I, I'll say never say never. But um, the, the more the time passes, the more I realize I'm just, I'm just often doing just different things. Uh, how about the thinking about just seeing a client and the, the responsibilities of, of seeing clients? Is that kind of that to me, that's a little bit intimidating at this point. It, it, it really is. I mean, after 10 years, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of veterinary medicine has passed me by. Uh, you might as well say it, it, it just goes by faster and faster. And uh, there are times when I get approached, you know, to, to, uh, to consider uh, joining someone else's practice and whatnot. But, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it takes a lot to shore yourself up, I think, uh, to, Make sure that you can be a good veterinarian, uh, a good diagnostician, take care of people. And, uh, you know, sometimes the public is not, uh, it's not the easiest. I mean, you can have 99 great clients, but, but then there's one that comes through the door and that, that's probably typical of everybody. Everybody has that experience, but nevertheless, that's, that's what can work at you. And, and there are those cases that are, so challenging that you don't quite know what to do with them and you wonder how you can best serve them. Uh, so there are those cases that regularly keep me up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm not so sure that I wanna embrace that anymore. You know, And of course the euthanasias are always uh, stressful and uh, it's a big responsibility when you're uh, recommending euthanasia as, as, a, as the treatment. Always, yeah, it's, it just takes it, a lot out of you after a while. It just really does. I think after some years, uh, you, you, it, it's cumulative. You know, I think you just end up feeling it more and more. And uh, I don't know that I want to put myself in that uh, circumstance really anymore. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But we could talk for hours, uh, but I've only allowed you 15 minutes. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> and it's and it's over. So I want to thank you, Greg, for coming on the show, my last show as a send off and sharing with the readers kind of a perspective of veterinary medicine back then. It's a lot different now, yeah, um, yeah. but uh, those were the good old days. So thank you so much for sharing this last uh, show with me. It's been my pleasure, John. It, it really is great to see you. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to follow your writing career. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I You've already got some projects under your belt that I've really enjoyed, and I know there's more coming. So I, I'm looking forward to all of that. Good luck to you, and it's really great to see you. And uh, the four of us will get together very soon. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to sign off for your segment. Take okay. care. Thank you. My next guest is a, another colleague and friend I've known for years. Uh, she owns the Searsport Veterinary Hospital. Uh, so she was my neighbor for many years before I retired, 
Dr. Yvette LaHaye. How are you, Yvette? I'm good. How are you today, Don? Good. It's good to see you. It's been a long time. Yes. yes. And we're taping this in the middle of her day. She's still actively practicing. Um, and I know it's really busy. But I wanted to have you on my last show because you're one of the, one of the few women that I knew back in, in the day as a veterinarian uh, because there weren't that very many women out in private practice. And you've, uh, I think you have a good perspective on that. And I think this would be a, a good time for you to kind of share that with us, with our, our listeners, since this is my last show. So uh, can you give us a little bit of perspective of how, you, how being a woman influenced how you got into, into the profession and the school and that sort of thing? Right. So I'm sure in the day, um, it probably helped getting into school. I, I think when I applied, things were starting to shift uh, the ratios men to women in classes. And I think probably being a woman at that time was good because it was almost like being a minority um, applying. And so it, it may have helped my chances. I'm not really sure. Um, I didn't have a problem getting in, so I don't that. Um, by the time I finished vet school, it had started, the trend had started to change. And so when, I believe when I graduated, the incoming class was um, now more proportionately women than men. And so it had done that switch. What year I was actually, that? What year, that? Was, what year was that? That was 1997. Okay. And so I think the trend had already started. And I have a, uh, a student working with me this summer who just finished her first year of vet school. And she said that out of 69 students, only five of them are men. Wow. So it has really gone the other way. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that changes anything as far as how we work or what we do. I think women have earned respect amongst their clients over the years, but I think everybody has to earn their respect. Uh, and anytime you're a new vet, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, um, there may be some reluctance uh, to use you as their vet, or you know they may have some reservation about that. So I don't know if it really makes a difference. Well, did you did you sense that at all, especially when you got out and you were a newbie? Uh, I, I, all of us, I we... didn't. I'm rather insensitive to that sort of stuff. Oh, okay. So nothing <laughs> so, blatant then. Nothing like no. I, I don't want to see a woman. You never got any of that. Never got any of that. Or if if they did, they didn't say it um, plainly enough for me to understand. Oh, okay. I well, just went about my job. Yeah, that's that's yeah. good. Well, this is a high, highly respected profession, so I think people respect anyone who's in it. I just wonder if there's just a blatant sexual bias. Mm -hmm. I think having been in small animal, it's probably less. Um, it may be the women that were getting into large animal at that time, probably were feeling it more. You know, you can't look at a five foot two, 110 pound female veterinarian and think that she's going to wrestle your thousand pound cow. Right. I mean, it, we do it and there are ways, um, but I'm sure that there were people out there that didn't think it could be done. Right. So I probably didn't experience it as much as somebody in that uh, part of our profession would have. So when you got out of school, where did you work? I worked uh, in Ellsworth for a couple of years for a mixed animal practice. Okay. Um, we did uh, 
mostly companion animals, cats and dogs, but we saw a few uh, horses and a few cows. And again, there was no, you didn't feel there was any problem with that. I didn't feel it. Um, How about pay, salary? I think pay probably was different. Um, I do think, I'm, I'm sure that had a man taken that position, it's very likely that he would have been offered a little more money. I'm also not a very pushy person. And so I maybe didn't stand up for myself as well as I could have, but that's all in retrospect. And, you know, it wasn't bad. I'm sure if I had said I need more or no, I'm not going to take the job, it would have been fine. Um, But I, I do think that is also improving because as we get through this and have more and more women uh, becoming veterinarians, there's fewer and fewer men to hire. Um, you have to hire who you can. And hopefully these women are, are learning to stand up for themselves and say, I am just as valuable as the guy next door. And uh, therefore you're going to pay me what you would have offered him. Also, there are more learning that. And more and more women are uh, owning or are, are in authority, not necessarily owning. That's a different right. story but women are hiring women. Right. Do you see that as a difference than men hiring women or women hiring men? Is there a women hiring women? Is there a qualitative difference? I think there's a lot of very subtle um, personality and authority undertones to all of that. Uh, And I think that most of us would never admit that. because it's not something we should really talk about or recognize. Um, it's not supposed to be happening. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, it's there. It's there. I mean, it can't not be. Right. Well, it's the same kind of bias that anyone, we all, we all have biases. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking right. for an employee, when I was in interviewing, whether it was a woman or a man, I was looking for certain red flags and certain things. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily whether you're a woman or not. But being a woman would be play part of that bias, I would I would think. I, I think it must. Um, so you're I mean, right. So when you when you hire someone, mm-hmm. do you are, do you recognize that, or you try to push that aside? And um, I, I mean, I try to push it aside and look at what they're offering for experience on their resume and what they can bring to the practice um, as you know a, a good contribution. And, you know, trying not to look at anything else in the picture. Um, I think for me, part of it is also trying to figure out if this person can work with my staff and myself in a comfortable manner and whether or not, um, whether or not that figures into if it's a man or a woman, I I, I honestly can't say. A lot of this, I go on gut instinct and whether or not I think this person is going to work and I mean, I've had both uh, working here and good experiences and bad experiences with both. So I don't think that that matters. When you were, um, let's say at Ellsworth, mm-hmm. uh, how did it feel working? How, how was it with working with the staff, uh, young women, and you count coming in as a woman? Was that an issue at all? Well, probably if I had been a six foot two tall strapping young man um <laughs> that would have been <laughs> I different that right i think that right there commands more um i don't know if respect is the right word but probably yeah, yeah. um 
I think I would, I went in more with, Hey, let's be friends and work on this together as opposed to being a commander. Right. Um, right. And that's, you know, it worked for me, but. So how does that change as an owner? Now you're as a woman owner, how's that being a woman mm-hmm. owner in terms so, of business and employees? Right. Um, I, I think that I have learned over the years how to be an authoritative figure uh, without being a commanding figure. And so I can walk in and say, okay, I think this is how we're going to do this. And I think in general, everybody respects me and, and they do as I ask, but it's not because I walked in and, and took over the room, you know, and, and um, ruled with an iron fist saying, this is how I'm going to do it. Uh, I, I'm a much softer person than that. But you're, so, but you're confident. I'm confident. Yes. And yes. So and I can walk in and I can say, this is what's going to happen. Right. Uh, and I, I feel like most of the time I get respect out of that. Um, and I think, you know, as employees, they're looking for direction and they want to feel like whoever's giving them that direction has confidence in what they're saying. That's just like a, a parent, child or teacher, student. Absolutely. The student looks for, for guidance and boundaries and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yes. direction. And yes. that's what you have to do. You don't go and boss them around. Right. Did you have any problems um, with uh, banks and drug companies and that kind of thing about terms of getting loans or? I had no problems, um, but I also did things. I, I, I didn't go immediately to the bank to get a loan. I actually leased the practice for a few years and built up um, some money by paying a lease price. And so when I went to the bank, I already had a pretty fair amount of uh, money. Equity in there. Let me apply the lease toward the purchase of the practice. We didn't go through a realtor. And so a lot of that was bypassed. That's a smart move, no matter whether you're a woman or a man. We call that creative financing. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And in those days, you had to because you have a student loan you're still paying off. Right. Which is a a huge huge issue. Where do you see yourself... um, Or where do you see women in the next 10 years in veterinary medicine? So I think a lot of that's going to depend a a bit on the corporate part of things. Mm -hmm. Um, As you mentioned, you know, an awful lot of practices are going corporate, which in some ways may be great for women because it may open up uh, a little more flexibility for them being able to have a family, you know, have children, things like that. Uh, as opposed to in my situation where when I had my son, I was back to work the next week because I had no one to cover for. And so I think, you know, it may help with that. Um, I think it's going to be harder for women to own practices if, I mean, obviously if corporate's buying them, um, unless you're in the corporation or working for that corporation, you know, you're not, there's going to be less ownership for everybody. And so not just women. Right. Um, I don't know how women are going to feel about that, whether they enjoy the idea of not having to make all of the decisions or if that's actually um, maybe not what they want. Maybe they do want to control it. Yeah. I'm not sure. You're uh, like um, a lot of us in small towns were kind of disappearing. Yes. Uh, the chances of you selling to another person as an individual Mm-hmm. I mean, would you rather have that than sell to corporate or are you not going to say? 
<laughs> you don't have to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I would love to sell the practice as a practice to an individual. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, my building is old. And unless I wanted to sink a million dollars into building a new one right now, which I don't think I can even do on this site because it's grandfathered just to right. be a practice, um, you know, with the zoning laws, I don't think I could tear down and rebuild anyway. So whether or not I would find anybody that wants to purchase this building uh, as a functioning veterinary practice, I think it's going to be questionable. I'll certainly put it up for sale when the time comes, but I'm not relying on it as my retirement. Well, our time has run out already because oh, wow. I have other that guests. I know, I know. We could talk forever, like I said, with Greg, uh, just right. forever. Uh, but I'm hoping your insights, um, anyone out there listening, interested as a woman being in veterinary medicine, it's very encouraging, I think. Very much so. And I think to don't let your being a woman stop you from getting into, into this business and don't being a man, stop. Just because there's a lot of women doesn't mean right. that you can't make a good living as a man too. It's almost reversed now. Right. Yep. Yep. I think we need a balance to keep right. the profession going in a healthy direction. Thank you so much for spending your lunchtime. Um, <laughs> you can't see my lunch here, can you? No, no, what, uh, no I can't. <laughs> you can gobble it up, but thank yes. you for being on my last show. Um, okay. And you, you, you were a great neighbor colleague and uh when i zip through i'll try to stop by and bother you that would be great because then we can actually sit down and have a conversation and just chit chat which, yes. which i like thank you very much of that okay thanks have a great day john okay you too my next guest is dr tom cameron i've known tom for i think 40 years we went to school together uh and he still talks to me i don't understand why but he does we've been in touch with each other and taking trips together for, for decades. He's now retired. He lives in Wisconsin. Uh, Tom, uh, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, John. Thanks for having me. It's been, uh, we have known each other a long time. And I think this is your third time on my show. I think you were on my show two times before. So you're like the veteran uh, guest. Awesome. And this yeah. is our last show, so it's only fitting that you'd be on my last show. So I thank you for spending the time. Glad to be here. So what I want uh, you two to talk about uh, is some trends in veterinary medicine. That's the, um, the alternative medicine. And as you know, uh, a lot of people know in vet school, we are trained very classically using um, different drugs and medications. Uh, and the alternative medicine is, is not using those things, and that's a big change. So I'd like to have you share with our listeners how you, how you became interested in alternative medicine and how you use it in your practice, and then finally, um, where do you think it's going? Okay, great. So uh, um, John and I graduated back in 1982, so it's 40 years this year that uh, we graduated from uh, Michigan State. And we got great training, great veterinary training at Michigan State. And uh, we came out, I think, pretty well prepared. Um, we were also very surprised when we got into practice because we didn't feel we knew enough. And so we had to practice and things got real in a hurry. Um, and that's, that's always interesting to me why they call it practice. We practice our entire 
career uh, at, at learning and always learning new things. But again, we got a good start, a good basis of training from Michigan State. Um, and I joined a, a five-man uh, mixed practice, meaning we did dairy, um, a lot of dairy here in Wisconsin and small animals. So I did uh, um, uh, herd work and small animal medicine and surgery. And, uh, um, and so we had a busy practice. We had uh, over 200 farms and uh, uh, three, three different clinics. So we had um, just saw a lot of animals and, and, and got just had a lot of great experiences learning how to be a veterinarian. Um, uh, but what happened, I mean, the traditional training, the classic training John was talking about at, at a veterinary school is using mostly drugs, drugs and surgery. And, uh, um, uh, and so that is one approach to uh, maintaining health. And that's how we were trained. After a few years of uh, practicing, I began to see animals that were not getting better, um, particularly in these chronic conditions that we see a lot of today, things like allergies and arthritis and even cancers. We started to see more and digestive problems and, and um, steroids and antibiotics and some of the other antihistamines, uh, other medications. Um, I found we were having to use them for longer periods of time or repeat treatments, or we just weren't seeing the results that we saw when we first got out of school. So I, I was getting frustrated with this and, and was looking for some other modalities to that might work along with the drugs um, uh, that we were taught. And so uh, um, by uh, accident, I uh, hurt myself playing softball. I was still trying to be do some athletics as a uh, young uh, uh, man and, uh, um, and was exposed to homeopathy. And uh, those of you that don't know about homeopathy, it's, it, and it, it's a, a, a medical um, system from the 1700s using small uh, amounts of plant, animal, and mineral substances. And, and I just saw some amazing results, quick results with this injury with homeopathy. So I, I thought, gosh, could I bring this into my practice? Because we have plenty of animals who come in with strained brains and uh, other types of injuries. And I learned about homeopathy and started using it on my patients along with the drugs and things got better. So I saw improved um, uh, clinical results. And uh, as I studied homeopathy, um, they were very big on saying nutrition is a big part of getting better no matter what you do. And that led me down another road of looking at, at different ways of feeding animals. Um, and so those were two new tools that I put into my um, toolbox. And, you know, if you are a carpenter or some kind of craftsman, um, you can't do everything with one tool. So I, I felt like we came out of um, uh, veterinary school with, uh, with one way of doing medicine and uh, uh, these homeopathy and nutrition uh, were two ways that, uh, um, that you could, two, two methods you could add to your treatment and son of a gun, if things didn't start getting noticeably better and we saw better results, animals just, their allergies going away, um, uh, arthritis is getting better. Um, and, and that also kept me open to other modalities. I um, uh, took 
uh, training in veterinary chiropractic um, uh, manipulation. And so that could help with animals with musculoskeletal problems. Uh, I had a massage therapist come in, veterinary massage therapist come into my practice. Um, I had an acupuncturist come into my practice. We had lasers. So, um, so every single one of these things um, uh, just added to our ability to um, get after the, um, the the problems that were affecting these animals, and uh, um, and it, again, it just gave us. It's like having more more different weapons uh, that you have a better chance of of hitting the target. So, um, uh, and I, the the there's kind of a joke about alternative medicine is that um, you know that people ask how'd you get into it. Um, it's more that it get, kind of gets into you when, when you see an animal that's been eating just dry kibble that is having all kinds of digestive problems and chronic skin allergies and skin infections and ear infections, and you change their diet and get them to, where, to a, 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 a diet or foods that, um, that agree with them, um, boy, their, their coats bloom, their eyes clear, they move better, they're more energetic. So uh, um, you can just tell that uh, the animals feel better. Um, and I would uh, have, have people look at this alternative medicine um, a lot of times people think we wear tie-dye t-shirts and, and headbands and have incense burning in the corner of our, uh, our offices and that we're old hippies and, and very off-base uh, people. Um, a better term for this type of medicine is, is what we call integrative medicine. And, and even in human hospitals, they have integrative medicine practitioners who use um, uh, combinations of modalities, like I talked about, uh, that we used in our um, practice, and uh, uh, and again are seeing much better um, results. Another thing that's driving this is the side effects that come with using medications, um, uh, and uh, um, I think that that John would agree with me that the patients we're seeing today are not as robust or they're, they are sicker than they were back when we first got out of school. And so um, uh, they have a harder time handling some of the more conventional medicines and, and by combining them with different nutritional supplements or dietary changes or um, some of the other uh, um, uh, physical modalities, um, we can uh, really see some, some great benefits. Um, I, I just a little plug, there is a book that's called The Forever Dog. If anybody uh, um, is interested in a pretty good read, um, this is a book that's written by uh, Dr. Karen Becker, who is a veterinarian, and uh, Rodney Habib. And uh, um, this is one that really is, is kind of the Bible right now on the, the benefits and the importance of nutrition and getting some fresh food in the dog's diet and how it, it uh, um, can really add to the longevity or how long the dog lives. Um, so honestly, John, the, 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 um, the, the idea of alternative medicine or complementary medicine, 
um, uh, or integrative uh, means that we put these things together, taking the best that every single one of these modalities has to offer, um, which gives you the best chance of having success at getting these animals well. Um, and uh, um, I, in mentioning the side effects of the um, uh, of things like chemotherapy and steroids and anti-inflammatories and and things like that, people are looking um, for just non-invasive and uh, uh, low side effects medications uh, for themselves and for their pets. So it's uh, it's very much a natural um, uh, progression. And uh, I think that medicine is getting better because uh, it's it's putting traditional older medical methods like acupuncture and, and massage and, and nutrition um, and uh, putting them together with the most current uh, and update medical um, practices. And that's the best chance medicine has right now. That's an excellent summary of what people need to consider when they are going to their veterinarian, uh, what they use, what kind of medicine they use, and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be afraid to ask if they do uh, other modalities other than surgery and drugs. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be fearful of asking that and search for someone that is more open-minded. Uh, and that's what you are. You seeing more and more. Do you think more and more veterinarians are getting into that? I think they are accepting, yes, they are. accepting the raw diets, accepting the, the, the supplements and, and that sort of thing. So that's, that's really, you are ahead of your time, believe it or not. So it's, well, I, yeah, I, I think I was, but it, it's, uh, now that type of information is pretty mainstream, you know, yeah, you're, yeah, you're it is. It on TV and magazines yeah. and, and yeah. things like that. So I think that the general public is much more aware of what's available and, and, uh, uh more open to, uh, to that type of thing. So, so it's, of course we could go for an hour, but I only gave you a couple minutes because I have three other guests, Tom, thank you for being on my final show. Uh, it means a lot to me and you spouted off your, your philosophy and, uh, who you have been as a veterinarian for years and years, and, uh, you've done a wonderful job. Uh, so again, thanks for showing up. Well, thanks, John. And thanks for everything you've done. Uh, I hope all of your work is going to be archived where people can continue to read it and, uh, uh, and read your books and, uh, uh and hear your guests. So you've done a great job and well, appreciate thanks. it. And look forward to seeing you again soon. Yes. Okay. So I'll sign off. Great. My final guest is Dr. Mark Hanks, another colleague and a friend for many years. And his position right now is he's actively practicing, but he will soon be retiring. And his uh, story is a little different than my story when I retired and Tom's and Greg's, for instance, uh, all three of us, we sold our practices uh, to another individual. And Mark has a different story that I want him to share. So good, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. John, it's so good to be with you. I, it, it's been a little while since we talked, not a long time. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I, I, you're a few years ahead of me in the retirement game, and you've been an inspiration to me. He gave me some advice before we were on the air today. <laughs> I'm not get involved in everything in the world, and I'm going to take it to heart. Good. You better, because I'll... Sir. I, I will track you down. <laughs> I'll track you down in Italy when you're going to be there in <laughs> September. Be a good excuse to go over there. Right. I got to find Mark Hanks. 
abundanza. <laughs> Spaghetti dinner. So uh, tell our, our uh, listeners what the difference uh, you're in now compared to me when I sold the practice to Dr. Smith, who's an individual. Um, so what's going on? Yeah, so I'm going to say in the last uh, uh, probably solidly three to five years, uh, things have changed in the veterinary uh, community. And one of the things that's changed is they changed the practice laws of the state of Maine to allow for non-veterinarians to own practices. And so that leaves two options that weren't on the table before. One of them is, uh, is uh, ownership by the employees. And that can be done, but it's complicated. Uh, and the other is corporate or consolidator uh, practice ownership. So basically there are groups throughout the United States and this has been going on for probably 15, 20 years overall, but not in the state of Maine, um, where they buy multiple practices and they have different plans. They have different business plans. So for instance, uh, probably one of the more popular ones is is Blue Pearl, which uh, buys a practice and then it's another Blue Pearl practice um, where basically the the uh, ownership of the practice goes to the corporation and the people are employed. Um, and then there's other consolidators who basically don't touch the medicine of the practice. They simply do at, uh, the monetary part. So for instance, uh, the one that I chose and, and I have, uh, I've been part of a group for the last three years um, is a local group out of Portland. Uh, and there, I was the second practice that they, that they took on and there's several others in the state and they have a couple other states that are represented as well. And their philosophy is basically the veterinary practice has a culture of its own and we find the veterinary practices that have a healthy culture and, and then we team up with them. So for me, I was the head veterinarian for the last three years and my practice has been open for 16 now. Um, and uh, as I leave, which is in 50 days, but who's counting? <laughs> Two uh, hours and five minutes. Yes, one of my associates will be taking over kind of as the medical director. So it, it puts a new face on veterinary medicine. And I think that this is no different than uh, Hannaford or, you know, groups uh, that have uh, convenience stores that have uh, backing corporation backing. And some of those are like 7-Eleven where basically they start uh, 7-Eleven and they're all the same, but some of them own multiple businesses and under one umbrella. So you're not talking about franchises. Is that different? not a franchise. It's okay. basically, and dentistry does the same. Um, human medicine, you know, we're probably 30 years behind human medicine um, in that way, in that small practice, uh, small uh, physicians that own their own practice are few and far between now. Um, and in the human world, I, I think a lot of that happened because of billing. You know, individual small practices would have to hire billing people uh, which just was cost prohibitive. So it was much easier to go into a group. And I'll say in veterinary medicine, one of the advantages has been, you know, I was on the verge. At, so probably at the time uh, that I entered in the partnership, I, I had 16 employees and three vets. And so I was right on the edge of really kind of needing someone for HR. It wasn't really wasn't working for me to try to make all the calls and all the policies anymore. Um, and this group has an HR department. So if there's a hiring issue or firing issue, there's somebody there that actually knows, unlike us in, you know, veterinarians, trained veterinarians who ended up being business owners, 
whether we were choosing insurance companies or whether we were counseling one of our employees, we were doing that as a, as a person and not really with any kind of background in it at all. Um, similarly, we were all making deals with uh, distributors and uh, you know, when we bought our heartworm prevention or whatever, and the larger groups who have 20, 30 practices can, can uh, talk to the, to the distributors and get better deals. So there's economies of scale, basically. Do the, um, you said you were running your practice last three years, but you're owned by a corporation. Well, so the, the model of the one that I went with basically is they buy 60% of the practice uh, initially, and then an additional, and this was just in our specific deal, an additional right. part of it at the end of the time when you're there. So additional three years later, 40%. So. <laughs> But they own 60. So during that time, were you, was the day to day practice unchanged, completely unchanged, or were their fingers starting to get into the? I, I would say um, so. One of the deals of our specific one is that they don't touch fees and, uh, and they don't touch uh, medicine, basically. So our choices of what tests we do, what you know, drugs we use, or whatever are totally our own. And uh, they made an exception to that rule, I'm going to say six months or eight months ago, in proposing to us that we had a 10% fee increase. However, that would go along with a 10% increase in all salaries of staff. And I thought from a business perspective, that's something, I, you know, we always were nickel and diming as private practitioners. And, and the fact is that our staff is underpaid for what they do. Um, a nurse it makes a lot more than a veterinary technician. Um, and a veterinary technician probably at the time, three years ago, made less than somebody at uh, entry level at McDonald's right now makes. So I do think it was time for us to increase that. Um, so I went along with it, but it was our option to choose, choose it. That's not everybody's business model. You know, there are some right, corporations right. that dictate all that. But in this situation, one of the reasons I chose this group was that they were, they were independent of that. Um, they were there more as a support than they were as a driving force in the practice. Do you see as your days are numbered? <laughs> so that, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> with a new manager, <laughs> with a new manager coming, do you see the corporation uh, starting to change a little bit in how they're? dealing with uh, the new manager or the I, practice? I would say that, um, you know, by nature of the fact that I started the practice and, and had a strong uh, feeling of what I thought was right and wrong, that I would simply say yes or no to individual things. And I, I am concerned in the future that if somebody didn't, doesn't have that founder syndrome where they started it, um, that, you know, they're more malleable. I, I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. I mean, I see this changing over time. I, I think I mentioned to you that I think that we're kind of in a honeymoon phase right now with uh, corporate consolidators and corporate groups because they're willing to do whatever we wanted. Um, I'm not sure that that's always going to be true. You know, they have a different metric than we did. We had a metric, you know, as you, you and I practice very close together and we supported the little league team and we did the, you know, bake sales and we did a dunk the dock. We, we had a little angel fund and every summer we would have a dunk the dock where they had a, a tank. We got, we rented one of those tanks and they would throw balls and, and dunk me in the tank. And we, you know, we would make money for our angel fund. 
And I, I did think it was weird that mostly my employees were paying to do that. But I mean, also <laughs> clients came. And uh, how did you think you know, about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but it was a you know it was a community thing. And although I think that the corporate groups are interested in that, they're not as connected because they're outside of the community. They don't know the individual people. So they would never, if they bought, if I was part of them, they wouldn't have accepted me going to coach track for in the afternoons for twenty years. Well, right. I I don't know. I I will say that one of the things that I noticed immediately about uh, kind of the corporate philosophy versus us is we came from a time where ten or twelve hour days wasn't a, weren't unusual. We were you know had on call or uh, we worked five or six days a week that were and 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 I would say a new generation's not interested in having a schedule like that. Um, so if anything, they're more forgiving about vacation time and flexible hours. Um, I think because they're aware of that's the way employee, employee, employers are going to function in the, in the future. So I see, I, I mean, I think that if they find the right person, I mean, already I've seen this, that they're willing to negotiate anything. Oh, okay. um, so I don't think that it's a, it's definitely not a slave driver kind of uh, culture. It's just a different, you know, it's a, it's a group that does not live in the community, just no different than you know, even though Walmart has a community uh, presence and they, I think they do a pretty good job with helping community um, th- uh, support, it's, a, it's coming from a, a central, they have to be okayed by a corporate group. Well, do you think it's kind of a perfect storm? The, the new vet coming out wants to work nine to five, five days a week, no emergencies. They don't want to do all that. And the corporations are the kind of uh, clinic that they would want to be in because they offer that. They provide that. They provide that. Absolutely. So it's, it's actually, I'll, it's I'll kind of. The, the other thing is that the, you know, technology has increased so dramatically. I mean, you saw that too in the last 20 years that the expense of a veterinary clinic is substantial. Yeah. Um, even setting up a veterinary clinic from scratch, you know, it used to be standard of care that we had a couple of tests and you know, an x-ray machine and now there's ultrasound and dental x-ray and I mean, all kinds of expenses. And the typical veterinarian may be walking out with $300,000 worth of school debt. Yeah. It's, different. yeah. it's a the, different mathematical consideration. And the desire not to work it's, it's 12 crazy. hours, you know, at <laughs> yeah. five o'clock. Yeah. I mean, at five o'clock, a Quills case comes in, you, you take it. Right. And right. And you don't even ask. Together. And you call your wife who rolls her eyes. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or not call her because you're afraid. Yeah, because you're afraid, right, exactly. <laughs> I should be home in five minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure you will, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you think, you say this is the honeymoon. So where do you think this is all going? I mean, you and I are going to be gone from the business. We're not going to be gone from the earth. We're going to be floating around. But where do you think this is going? I don't know. I mean, I'm cons- my biggest concern is, you know, where human medicine healthcare is right now. Um, my wife just recently went through a medical uh, scare, and you know, the the hoops that you have to jump through between insurance, et cetera, it, are huge. And I worry about that 30 years from now in veterinary medicine. Expenses are going up. Um, you know, insurance looks like a better idea. How long is it that we're independently just sitting down with the client and saying? Hey, what do you want to do? So, and these corporations are pushing health insurance, aren't they? 
Uh, Some would, are, at least that's yeah, what I've heard. I, I'd, say, I'd say that they certainly see the advantage of it because again, I, we were talking about a, a, a knee surgery that you and I used to do for 500 or $1,000. Well, that knee surgery has gotten a lot better now, um, but it might be $5,000. Yeah. And so for the typical person, I now recommend, you know, hey, I don't think it's a bad idea to look into pet insurance. Yeah. Well, of course, we could always talk for the rest of the hour, but I only gave you 13 minutes. Oh. <laughs> so we're out of time. Dr. Mark Hanks, Mark, thank you for, uh, I know you've been really busy and um, I'm gonna call you on your day of retirement to, to congratulate you. And thank you for spending the time with me uh, this afternoon. It's, uh, it's always, it's, it's so fun to, uh, to be with thank you. Thank you, John. Thank, and also thank you for continuing to be a beacon um, of the community uh, for veterinarians. You represent us well. Wow, that's very nice. You, you too, both. Both to you're you're a fabulous vet, so I'm going to sign off, and uh, I will talk to you another time very soon. Thank you. This concludes my final show for Let's Talk Animals. I want to thank Greg and Yvette and Mark and Tom for being on my last show. I want to thank my son Will Hunt for providing the music that he wrote himself. I want to thank Joel and Amy and Matt at the WERU station for all their support and help all these years that I've been on this show. And especially I want to thank you, the listeners, for supporting WERU. So until the next time we meet, make sure you enjoy your pets and don't forget to give them a hug. Mm-hmm.